0: The United Kingdom remains a top destination for foreign investment, with inbound funds increasing by 12% in 2017. That's the last year for which totals are available. In that year, the value of the UK's foreign direct investment rose to 1.3 trillion pounds sterling. That's the highest level since record keeping began. Those are great numbers, and hopefully the party is just getting started. But what kind of role do regulations on foreign direct investment in the UK play? Jones Day's Matt Evans and Chase Kanicki are here to talk about it. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Based in London, Jones Day's Matt Evans advises on UK and EU competition law, focusing on both merger control and behavioral matters. And he also advises on UK foreign direct investment approvals, and we're about to talk much more about that. In addition, Matt represents clients before the Competition and Markets Authority and European Commission to obtain regulatory clearance for mergers, acquisitions, and joint ventures. From Jones Day's Washington office, Chase Knicky helps clients navigate complex issues associated with international trade and national security matters. Specifically, his practice focuses on CFIUS, economic sanctions, export control, customs, and trade remedy matters. Matt, Chase, thanks for being here today.
1: Thanks, Dave. Good to be here.
0: Matt, give us a High level view of where this is right now in the UK. When can the UK government intervene in takeovers or investments by foreign investors?
1: Okay, sure. Um, well, at the moment, the UK's actually got relatively limited possibilities to intervene in takeovers by foreign investments, um, and it does it under some powers that allow it and our competition regulator, the Competition Markets Authority to assess whether certain deals may operate against the public interest. And and the only sectors that it can look at at the moment are deals that affect public security, which is essentially defense Mm -hmm. industry-related deals,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, deals that affect media plurality, so that's uh, a merger between two newspapers, Mm -hmm. deals that affect the stability of the financial sector, that's essentially mergers between banks, and that was introduced uh, in the wake of the financial crisis some 10 years ago. Okay. And then a n- couple of newish sectors that were introduced last year in 2018. One is deals that affect dual-use industries. So those are industries that have both a civilian and a military application.
0: Dual-use industries?
1: That's right. Okay. Um, there's a whole list in the legislation as to what they are, but it's essentially applications that can be used both um, in defense and a sort of civil use. Okay. And then finally, certain types of advanced technology, specifically technology relating to CPUs, so computer processing units, and certain types of quantum technology. So those are the only sectors currently where the sort of foreign investment review powers can kick in. Okay. Is there a, an
0: entity, an administrative board, an agency that's in charge? Who oversees this, I guess?
1: Yeah. So ultimately it's a political decision. And so it's the secretary of state and the government who who has the final decision. But the way it works is we don't actually have a formal notification process. So it's not like in other jurisdictions where parties who are doing a deal can proactively notify a deal and go through a formal process.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Essentially the government comes to you. I mean, we can talk about how you might manage that process, but you announce your deal. And then the government, the Secretary of State, will issue one or several types of intervention notice where he or she is saying, we think there might be a public interest concern here, and we'd like that looked at. The body then that actually assesses it is our competition authority. It's the Competition and Markets Authority. And typically, it does that in parallel with an antitrust review as well. It will do a first phase review uh, and then publish a report and a recommendation that goes back to the government. And the government decides then how to act on that they may accept the recommendations. They may ask the CMA to go into an in-depth phase two investigation, or they may, um, they may clear the deal. Okay. But it's, so it's ultimately a political decision, but the review is undertaken by our Competition and Markets Authority.
0: Okay, last August in the United States, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, that's firma to all of us here at Jones Day Talks, signed into law last August. Is there something equivalent to that in the UK?
1: Not yet, but something like that is coming. So last year in the summer, the UK government issued a public consultation on extensive changes to the foreign investment review process. And the consultation finished last year, and we're waiting for the outcome of that. The government is is, is somewhat preoccupied with Brexit at the moment, so I think (laughs) everything else is is on hold. But, um, But we are expecting significant changes and something similar to Therma. So to give you a flavor, they're going to introduce a formal notification process. So there will be an online form that merging parties can proactively fill in. Uh, it'll probably be voluntary, although that's not been decided yet. The notification will be made to the government mm-hmm. rather than to the Competition Markets Authority. And there will then be a formal review process. So the first part of the notification process will be confidential. And there'll be a screening process by the government to decide whether they want to call in the deal for a proper review. That's going to take, typically they're expecting three weeks, so 15 working days, but they can extend that by a further 15 working days. All that's confidential. And then if the government decide that actually there's an issue that needs to be looked at, they'll call that in and the calling will be made public. And then there'll be a more in-depth review that um, is minimum 30 working days can be extended by a further 45 working days.
0: Now, if this comes into force, as you're describing, would just companies on that list that you mentioned before, or companies in those industries, only those companies in those industries would be subject
1: to this review? Right, no. Okay. So it's going to be, so the target industries are significantly expanded, and in fact, the government in the consultation paper have been careful to say we're not ruling out any sector of the economy. Mm. But they have identified some areas of particular interest, and the the list is reasonably long. Certain what they describe as national infrastructure sectors, so that's civil nuclear use, defense, communications, energy, and transport. Then a whole bunch of advanced technologies, including AI, um, autonomous robotic systems, computing hardware, cryptographic technology, nanotechnologies, synthetic biology, network and data communication. They then have quite a vague category which is critical direct suppliers to the government and emergency services sectors. Sounds like a catch all, right? It, well it is it is a catch-all. And then then they say and also then there's a whole bunch of national infrastructure sectors that could be of interest. And they mention finance, chemicals, food, health, space, water, pharmaceuticals, I mean you name it. They've also added, and I know this is something that's looked at in the States and has by CFIUS in the past and has led to deals being blocked, They've also said that if a foreign buyer, or ultimately a buyer that's ultimately controlled by a foreign entity,
0: uh-huh. um,
1: buys something that's on land that's in close proximity to a sensitive site, such as a military installation or a nuclear installation, that could raise national security concerns, and they would be interested in that too.
0: Sure, this can go a lot of different directions—not just the industry or the sector, but as you said, geography maybe plays into this sometimes. Let's bring Chase Kanicki in for a second. Chase, based on what you've heard. What sort of comparisons can you make to the situation in the U.S.? We talked about FIRMA and so forth, but where's the U.K. versus the U.S. right now, do you think?
2: So I think it sounds like the U.K. is moving in a very similar direction to the United States. Uh, Historically, uh, the U.S. has had a voluntary process, um, and FIRMA made some significant changes to that process, including to expand the jurisdiction of CFIUS. And it sounds like that's what this proposed... Amendments to the fdi regime in the u k would do, and uh, a lot of the industries that Matt was running down the list, I was sort of ticking off of my list, and it sounds like the u k and the u s are interested in a lot of the same types of industries where there's foreign investment, including there's a large push right now for investments in you know, AI technology, autonomous vehicles, nanotechnology. Mm-hmm. but you know you still have your historical concerns as well critical infrastructure, national security dual use, you know, export control, military, commercial items subject to stringent controls. So it certainly sounds like the UK is heading down the same path, including by putting into place this formal notification process. Now, I'll be interested to see whether it ends up being a completely voluntary process or whether the UK will, uh, in a sense, follow the US lead and impose a mandatory filing requirement for investments in certain you know, perhaps critical technology companies in the UK or you know, perhaps other types of uh, concerns that the UK government has. If you had to guess
0: right now, put some money down, will it be mandatory or, or will it remain voluntary? From, yeah, the my, my
1: guess is it will remain voluntary. The, the UK is quite fond of its voluntary sort of merger control system. The, the difficulty with voluntary, we find companies tend to hate the voluntary system because they don't like with their advisors being responsible for making the call whether to file or not. Gosh. The consequences of not filing is that you complete your deal and then the authorities open up an investigation and ultimately could unwind the deal. So if you're on this list, you'd be well advised to sound out the government and, and gauge its appetite for reviewing the deal.
2: Well, Matt, is is there any way to approach the UK government sort of informally if you're concerned about whether they might be interested in the transaction? Is there a way to do that? without yeah, prejudice? Yeah, right. Yeah, there is.
1: And particularly under the current regime, because we don't currently have a formal notification regime and you kind of have to be a bit, well, there's a risk you could be passive and just wait and reactive and wait for the government to decide whether it's interested in your transaction or not. So what we have seen, and we've done this on a number of deals, is that you can sort of informally approach the government. Um, You can do that through a public affairs organization. You can do it through your own contacts with government, particularly Ministry of Defense type deals you may have to speak with them anyway because there may be a change of control condition if you've got government contracts. And so you can use those channels to sort of informally sound out their appetite for looking at the deal and also to put forward your case as to why the government doesn't need to open a formal review. They're generally more interested in getting confidence that jobs and intellectual property and skills are going to remain in the UK rather than as a priority concerns that some ultimately foreign-owned company that may have connections with a foreign state may be interested in espionage or some other nefarious activity. The, the government's driving force actually is to keep jobs and skills and high-value technologies in the UK. So, you can put that case forwards and try and head off a, a review.
0: Sure. You know, and that's interesting, Matt. And, and Chase and I have done several of these programs. And I think you're the first person, and it should be obvious, right? I mean, yeah, sure, there's national security concerns and that kind of thing, and that's the high-level, sexy stuff that people want to worry about. But sometimes it's just a pragmatic, look, are jobs and economic activity going to stay here in the UK? And I think you're the first person to articulate that from any of the jurisdictions we've talked about. Right.
1: So the genesis for the change in the law was when our current prime minister, um, Theresa May, I might say, as at the date of us recording this podcast, because who knows how long she'll stay in power. She has said she's going to step down um, imminently. Yes. Um, when she took power in the summer 2016, she, she made quite an impactful speech as her first speech as Prime Minister. And one of the things she said was that she wanted to introduce a new industrial strategy for the United Kingdom. And she talked about industries of, of importance to the economy, such as biotech and pharmaceuticals. and and expressed concerns that a number of major foreign owned corporations had attempted to take over some jewels in the crown of the UK economy. And those deals didn't go ahead. But the concern was that if they had done, they would remove, you know, take jobs out of the country, take skills and know-how and intellectual property. And and she majored quite a bit on this in her first speech. And that is very much the original driving force behind the, the proposed changes.
0: And that always has, if I'm using the term correctly in this context, populist appeal anyway. So it's nice to see that that's an acknowledged priority here in terms of what they're trying to do in terms of foreign direct investment. Matt, you mentioned Brexit a couple times earlier, I think. Are there changes or anticipated changes in these regulations because of Brexit? Or are they tapping the brakes a little bit, waiting to see what actually happens there?
1: Yeah, I don't think that because of Brexit. As I say, I think it's more a, a sort of almost philosophical decision to introduce this new industrial strategy to protect jobs. Brexit will facilitate the changes, so if, if and when the UK does leave the European Union, it will enable the UK to intervene more easily in deals that previously would have been notified for antitrust scrutiny at the European Commission. Those deals at the moment are sort of looked at on an exclusive basis by the European Commission under antitrust rules, and under those rules, there's limited scope for national governments to then apply their national security or public interest tests. There's only a few categories, public defense is is one, media is another, but there's only a few categories where they can actually intervene. So Brexit will facilitate a highly interventionist um, approach by the UK government should it wish to adopt one. We talked about
0: targeted industries and so forth and and some of the other factors here. And Matt, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but let's go back to this. How much does it matter if a potential buyer or investor is connected with a foreign government versus being an independent private entity or company in a foreign country? What's the difference? How, how, How much does that play in?
1: So I think it definitely plays more to the national security concern rather than the sort of jobs and skills concern. Where I think it could make a difference is where you're looking at acquisitions of minority states. So the proposals are that um, the UK will be able to call in any deal where one party is acquiring significant influence or control over another party or entities or assets in the UK. And the threshold for that's going to be set very low. I mean, it's certainly going to be more than 25% of shares or voting rights in an entity, but it could be much less than 25%. It could be, you know, 10%, 7% but you're the largest shareholder, or there's something about your business or your influence that means that the calls that that investor is making are likely to be the ones that the business or the other shareholders follow. And I think that the risk that a deal is called in, even on quite small minority stakes, is raised if the buyer is connected with a foreign government. So if they're ultimately owned by an SOE, for example, sure. rather rather than by a private entity.
0: Okay. And Chase, correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to be the case in the other jurisdictions we've covered in this series so far. Isn't that accurate? I mean, if a, if a government is involved, even at a relatively small level, that still kind of throws up a flag, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I think it heightens the level of scrutiny that that particular jurisdiction is going to impose on their review of a foreign investment. And it's, it's interesting to hear Matt talk about this. You know, certainly we've done a number of these podcasts, Dave and the types of steps and measures that we see the UK thinking about taking are very consistent with what we've heard from our colleagues in Australia and in Germany and you know, I think you could look at it in one of two ways one is are these various jurisdictions trying to in a sense tighten the screws on foreign investment and you know I think that certainly plays in the background a little bit but I think my personal view is these measures and all these amendments are not necessarily aimed at making it more difficult I think they're aimed at giving governments in these various jurisdictions just an opportunity to review these foreign investments so they can evaluate on their own the impact that it's going to have on national security or the like. And so I don't necessarily think all these changes are closing the door to foreign investment, but it's just certainly giving governments an opportunity to review them. And I think that hammers home the importance, uh, I think I've said this in a number of these podcasts, is just making sure that thinking about the various FDI regimes around the world are on your pre-deal checklist. Map out the various jurisdictions that these deals touch and make sure you're thinking about whether you either need to make a filing in that particular jurisdiction or whether it would be prudent to make a filing if it's a voluntary regime. So it's very interesting to hear Matt talk about this.
0: Well, I think it's just prudent and smart to anticipate this type of scrutiny at some point. Let's talk, we've got a couple minutes left, let's talk pragmatics, how this actually goes. First of all, Does this process slow down deals? I mean, these deals are never easy to do. Cross-border, multinational deals, that's got to be incredibly complicated. I don't know how you guys do it, number one. But you layer in this review process. How much does that slow you down, Matt?
1: The current review process in the UK, generally it doesn't slow down the deals because typically the deals are also being looked at, even if it's just in the UK, on competition grounds. And so the Competition Markets Authority and the government try and align the timetable for the public interest test review with the antitrust review. So if you're facing a competition review, you've already got a delay, and by and large, they'll try and align the uh, public interest test review with the antitrust review. There was a deal last year in the media sector and the, the acquisition of News International where there was a very, very extensive public interest test review, and it delayed the deal by by about a year. So it can slow down, but that is exceptional. I think under the new regime, there is a risk that the deals that are called in for review will slow down a little bit, and the ability to close the deal might slow them down by a few weeks. But again, a lot of these deals will have conditions precedent in any event to get merger control under antitrust reviews in the UK, maybe elsewhere in the world, and those timetables can, can vary. So typically we think you know clients will be used to this and will be able to factor that in quite easily into their deal timetable
0: okay good enough this is a final question for both of you what can a buyer or investor do to make the reviews easier to make the process less onerous
1: Let's okay go Well, first. i mean you, you both touched on this already which is you know think about this at the outset right at the start of the genesis of the deal and strategize so Certainly under the current regime in the UK, and we've, we've seen this with a couple of clients, think about how much public interest is going to be. Is there going to be negative press coverage? If there is, try and anticipate that and try and get in there before it starts. So either you do it on your own or you use a specialist public affairs company. Start engaging with government, put your side of the story forwards, provide the sort of key messages you think they're going to want to hear, you know, so long as they're true. Mm -hmm. about keeping jobs and firewalls and and whatever the public interest test might be concerned, keeping those in the UK so that you might be able to preempt and head off uh, an investigation. So I think, you know, I can't overestimate the importance of doing that. And and where we've seen clients do that, they've managed to get the deals through even without a public interest test review and in the face of significant negative press coverage and and sort of populist discussions in, in the media.
0: Chase, what would you add to that?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And just to piggyback off of that, thinking not only about what the U.S. or U.K. government or any other government might think about a particular deal and try to get ahead of any issues that you think might come to their mind. You know, thinking about whether there are other interested parties in a particular transaction, maybe a bidder that didn't win the bid, um, and think about if they want to try to make mischief for a particular transaction. What they might try to tell, for example, the UK government about a deal, and, and try to head off any of those issues as well. So I think, and again, this goes back to the point of thinking about all of these issues at the outset of a deal, and you know, not having the issues pop up a month before closing, which can be very hectic for a
0: transaction. Aggravating, I'm sure. I've got to ask because you brought it up. You know, the spurned suitor causes trouble when a deal's trying to, you know, be consummated, right? Have you seen that happen? You don't have to mention names or anything, but that's, is that uh, unusual?
2: I think it was more unusual a few years ago, but I think folks are now understanding that this is at the forefront of uh, a lot of governments, their minds around the world. And so to the extent, you know, I think that's another arrow in their quiver is to try to make mischief that way. So we've certainly seen, uh, at least in the U.S., an uptick in those types of efforts.
0: Every time we do one of these, this gets more and more complicated, more complex. There are more things to consider when you're trying to get a deal done. Hey, Matt, Chase, thank you so much. This has been great. Matt, let's check in with you maybe later on in the year to see where things are in the UK because this is a, a topic that certainly is, is uh, garnering more and more interest. So we'd like to hear from you again and get your observations maybe second half of the year if that's okay.
1: Yeah, no, happy to. And, and obviously if the UK remains part of the EU, later this year, then the interplay between the UK rules and the new EU regulation, which I know is a subject of a, a, another podcast, is going to be interesting too.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Chase, Matt, thank you both for being here. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave.
0: Take care. You can find information on Jones Day's antitrust and government regulation practices at jonesday.com. There you can also find complete bios from Matt Evans and Chase Kanicki. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts, Android, Google Play, and Stitcher. And while you're there, be sure to check out the other programs in our Foreign Direct Investment series. Big thanks to Laura Bell for producing today's program and to Dan Barona for his editing work. And thanks to you for listening to Jones Day Talks. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.